Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force in armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. In this episode seven, my guest is Professor Alonzo Gramendi Dunkelberg. He'll be very well known to readers of the international law blog Opinio Juris, where he is a contributing editor, as well as the blog Just Security, to which he is also a contributor. Alonso is a professor of international law at Universidad del Pacifico Law School in Lima, Peru, and he's currently on leave, completing his PhD at University College London. In addition, he's also teaching as a visiting professor at the University of Michigan Law School this semester. The scholarship focuses on the use of force and international humanitarian law, and as will become very apparent in our conversation, he has a real interest and expertise in the history of these areas of international law. Prior to joining the academy, he was a lawyer in private legal practice, during which he represented Peru in various fora, including the ICJ, in international law litigation. Now, the primary focus of our discussion today is a recent set of essays and articles by Alonzo on the topic of Latin American approaches to and perspectives on the use ad bellum regime. It's an incredibly rich conversation in which we discuss the development of a very particular position on non-intervention and the prohibition on territorial acquisition by war in 19th century Latin America, partially in reaction to the American Monroe Doctrine. And we talk about how this found expression in the Montevideo Convention of 1933 and how it should today inform our understanding of Latin American statements and postures in response to uses of force, including Latin American positions on such issues as humanitarian intervention and the unwilling or unable doctrine. And as well, we dive into a comparison between how the Caroline incident of 1837 impacted the development of the laws of war in contrast to how a very similar incident during the Texas Rebellion has been largely forgotten, at least in Western accounts of the development of public international law. Alonso also helps to place this account of the Latin American approach to use ad bellum into the broader context of TWAIL, or third world approaches to international law. So let me stop there and bring you Alonso Gramendi Dunkelberg. Alonso Gramendi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Craig. Great to be here. I know that the Opinio Juris and Just Security crowd all know you very well, but as you know from listening to the podcast, I ask all of our guests to share a couple of sort of fun facts about them that even your colleagues might not know about you. Yeah, I've been listening to, to all the... Um, all the stories of my friends over there. I actually didn't knew, didn't know the uh, Kevin's story about Donald Trump from before. So I, yeah, very special. I don't think anyone did. He, we talked about it over food in Peru once. So <laughs> I have. I mean, I, I've been thinking about it, uh, knowing that um, I was going to be asked this. I was thinking about, okay, what do I say now? Because I need to top Kevin, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I came up with two. The first one is I I actually took Yale University to court once. Wow. I was the, a member of a litigation team in, in Peru when I used to work in a law firm. We dealt with cases in defense of the Peruvian state. And one of the cases that we were handling back then was in 1910, 1911, Yale University sent an expedition to Peru to discover the ancient ruins of Machu Picchu. Uh, quote unquote discover because Peruvians knew it was there. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, uh, Haram Bingham, the guy who, who went there, the, uh, he hired a Peruvian and said, 
you know, can you show me the ruins? And then said, I discovered it. <laughs> but uh, so he, he goes there and he gets a lot of uh, archaeological artifacts and asks permission from the Peruvian government to take them on loan for, you know, two years. And time goes by and, you know, research wasn't done. So they didn't give it back. And then eventually World War One happened and then World War Two happened. And then, you know, the entire 20th century happened and, and the artifacts remained in, in Yale. And so the Peruvian government took Yale to court and hired the law firm I was working in to recover them. And we actually settled the case in favorable terms for the for the government. So if you or any of your listeners goes to Cusco and sees any archaeological artifacts out of Machu Picchu, like not the ruins themselves, but, you know, pottery or something like that, right. uh, likely it is that they were part of the shipments that we brought back to, to Peru. So think about me when you visit Machu Picchu. <laughs> So you not only sued Yale, but you won. Yeah, I mean, we settled, but we settled. I mean, the the artifacts are no longer in Yale, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, that's a victory. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also thought about a second one. Uh, this one related to Opinioris in that um, I, before I joined as a contributing editor, I was a Peruvian law school student in uh, trying to pursue a career in in research academia and international law, which is not exactly something that's very easy to accomplish in Peru. Most lawyers end up in law. And so I was actually a very big fan of opinion juries before I was a member of it. And if you scour the old posts from 2006 to 2012, more or less, there is a pseudonym that I had that I will not reveal here. Uh, <laughs> but you, you might be able to find, you know, my early day questions as I, the opinion years guys back then were kind of like my unofficial professors. You know? right. <laughs> I had one course on international law in my entire legal education. So I, I basically read every single post at opinion years, asked a lot of questions. And if you scour the, the old website and you guess the pseudonym, you will, you know, find lots of Easter eggs of the silly things I asked. And I don't, I don't even think <laughs> Evan knows this. <laughs> Let the Easter egg, Easter egg hunt begin. All right. Well, and clearly you were uh, highly successful. You're now at the Universidad de, de, de Pacifico. And as I understand it, you're on leave uh, from the university and are currently in London at UCL pursuing your PhD in military necessity. Is that right? Yes, yes. I am studying the history and evolution of military necessity and what can we learn from that today. Wow. And you're on leave from there as well to teach at University of Michigan this semester. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on leave from Pacifico while I study the PhD. And then I actually did not need to ask for leave to go to Michigan because COVID-19 kept me from traveling. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I will be teaching a class on, on inter-American human rights law over at, um, at Michigan with a, a little bit of an emphasis on on the case law of the system, but also the history and how it, how it got there, right. uh, how it evolved. I, 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 well, if you read what I've been writing in, in opinion years, you know that I like to mix history and law quite a bit. So. Yes. And that's, in fact, we're not going to be focusing on the doctrine of necessity, um, for which we're going to have to have you back sometime. But today, I think we're going to focus on your, your series of essays and articles on the Latin American approach to and perspectives on USAD Bellum, and perhaps more specifically, the Latin American approach to forceful intervention in internal conflicts and civil wars. 
And as you say, you not only provide a historically based analysis of the position and approach, but you explain why it matters, why it is relevant to international law more broadly. And to begin with one of your uh, blog posts on the subject, you bring uh, this perspective to bear on how we should understand the Latin American response to the airstrikes on Syrian forces in April of 2018. So perhaps one way we could work this is to work backwards into the subject by first talking about how the Latin American positions, in particular on the Syrian strikes in 2018, were misinterpreted and why a proper understanding is actually important to international law itself. Sure. So I think the the main thing to understand about Latin America is that it evolved in a very particular context. And there is a way to see a process through which the legal approaches that Latin America takes respond to specific events in the region. And that is very important to understand things because let's say if we analyze Latin America in isolation without taking into consideration that context, we might reach uh, conclusions that are not exactly uh, reasonable with the past and the history, the legacy that exists there. If you trace back Latin American's history, you will end up in the beginning of the 1800s with a group of rebels and revolutionaries that had attained independence from an empire that was already collapsing. In a moment in history where revolutions had caused a lot of damage in Europe. So the French Revolution led to Napoleon and uh, the central powers, uh, the central empires, Prussia, Russia, Austria, they were very uh, anti-revolution. So they met in a series of congresses uh, in, in Europe to develop an understanding of international law that allowed them to intervene to prevent another kind of revolution creating a new Napoleon. So there's this Congress called the the Congress of Tropau, where uh, all of these empires decide if anyone starts a a revolution we don't like, we have a right to intervene. Our right of necessity, that creates a state of necessity that allows us to intervene. And this was a very bad outlook for a group of young republics that were doing something that quite frankly, had only been done once before, well, twice if you count in Haiti, like Haiti and the United States. And they were in a very vulnerable situation uh, with regards to legal standing. Like Spain had not recognized their their existence yet. So they needed to develop a theory that allowed them to say, first, I am allowed to secede from the Spanish Empire and declare my own country. And second, you, as in you other the colonial powers out there are not allowed to recolonize me. So while in Europe in the 19th century, you had a, a system of laws that revolved around the idea of the balance of power and the right to interfere and intervene in the affairs of other states. And this idea that you know war was sort of like a game that the kings played with each other. and It was just uh, politics by other means. In Latin America, a different system evolved that was very much contrary to this extended notion of intervention uh, in order to protect um, the, the, the newly created states. So it is this, this general idea of having to keep other states from attacking um, Latin American shores that explains where does the Latin American approach to non-intervention and use of that comes from. It is a completely different 
I think, regional system that fought its way all the way up until the UN Charter, trying to you know, maintain its own independence. There's a very good article by Adil Haq uh, about this on, on the Act of Chapultepec. Uh, you discussed this in the previous episode. So, yes, I think, I think the main idea here is that in Latin America, non-intervention and uh, self-determination are key. So when you see a response by a Latin American state saying we should respect the UN Charter with regards to the Syria strikes, for example, you can either see it as, oh, they, they, they don't want to make a fuss. They don't want to say something about um, what's going on over there. They're, they want this to be allowed to uh, go on, which is the position that the uh, scholars like, like Monica Hakimi takes. I would say in context, seeing, seeing where this comes from, it's more likely that Latin American states are trying not to get on the bad side of a big power and not specifically saying this attack was illegal. But at the same time, basically repeating that interpretation of use of force that we have believed in for so many years, so many centuries, still stands. And so I often read how people in the United States are surprised that, you know, even when Trump wanted to use force against Venezuela, he was unable to. Well, part of the reason is because the entire Lima group of um, South American states, Latin American states, opposed use of force in Venezuela. From the beginning, even the most aggressive presidents like Bolsonaro in Brazil all said use of force is not the way to go here. Colombia and Brazil, the two strongest allies of the United States, were very clear on that. regard. So I think that's the context in which to understand how, oh, I mean, not a world power like any South American state would take a cautious way to say, let's respect the UN Charter. That should mean, to someone who understands the background, should mean let's take a restrictive approach to use force. Interesting. So as I understand your account of the history, it's interesting to hear that even before Yusad Bellum really becomes a system of law, I mean, if you think of Yusad Bellum really emerging at the turn of the century, right? And really the prohibition on the use of force only crystallizing in the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, you're saying that this legal principle of non-intervention, non-forcible intervention was well on its way to development in Latin America. And then with the UN Charter establishing as in, in the new system of use ad bellum, this very strong prohibition on use of force, that is just really consistent with a pre-existing approach in Latin America. And therefore, the Latin American uh, countries all embrace the new UN Charter system. So just bringing it forward to the Syrian strike, I just want to get into a little bit more of the detail. As I understand it, a number of the Latin American countries made statements that, as you say, were somewhat ambiguous, were simply assertions of support for the UN system and international law. And this was read by some as acquiescence or even tacit support for the American and European strikes on Syria, but you're saying, on the contrary, this should be understood as tacit resistance uh, and support for a full-throated support for Yusad Balam, which the Syrian strikes violated. Does that sum it up? Yes. Yes, yes. And and it's interesting that you mentioned the Kellogg-Briand Pact, because uh, at some point I would like to segue into the Montevideo Convention of 1933, which is a 
a topic that, that frustrates me a lot because people seem to think that that convention is important because it defines the elements of a state. And to me, that's, <laughs> that's, that's one article that's the, probably the, the most impactful article that it has, but it shouldn't be because there's a lot of things in that convention that are very interesting. Well, that's, that's um, actually, why don't we, so, I mean, when I was reading your essays, which of course we'll, we'll post links to on the website, this was really an interesting part. Your discussion of the Montevideo convention, I thought was fascinating. So why don't we just digress for a moment and, and dig into that? Sure, sure. So the Montevideo convention is usually studied, especially in the global north, but I would say also increasingly in the global south. I know I did not study this this way in my own international law class in Peru. This is something that is slowly being rediscovered by a group of scholars that, like myself, like history and come from Latin America. But here's the thing. The, the 1933 convention is usually studied as an isolated event. It's this standalone treaty that defines what the state is, and that's why it's important. And that frustrates me a lot. Because the 1933 convention is the end result of a very long path of resistance by Latin American states resisting American interventionism in the region. So in, I'm going to take you back to the 19th century again, because I think most of the problems with international law today go back to the 19th century. Right. Um, but in the 19th century, the U.S. in 1823 proclaims the Monroe Doctrine which was this idea that no foreign power could act in, in the Americas, in, in the American continent, I'm going to say, because I'm Latin American and study <laughs> <laughs> continents differently. So this, this general idea was initially uh, solidarity between former colonies. The United States didn't really have any, any capability to, to enforce the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, but it was a statement of let's, let's show solidarity with the new American republics in the southern parts of the continent. And this was all well and good until um, the end of the 1890s and the beginning of the 20th century, when the United States begins to flex its muscles as, a, as an emerging power, not, not just a former colony, but a, a power in itself. And so uh, a series of events happened, uh, I'm, I'm going to gloss over, right. um, where the United States starts to change the narrative of the Monroe Doctrine from this idea of continental solidarity among former colonies into basically the idea of the backyard and the police force of the United States, where if Cuba changed its government to one that wasn't favorable to you know, the U.S.'s idea of progress, then the U.S. had a right to intervene with the Platt Amendment. Or there's a similar instance in Venezuela where the United States allows Germany to bombard Venezuelan, uh, blockade, sorry, Venezuelan ports. And so this change in attitude of the United States uh, prompts a series of meetings uh, called the Pan-American meetings, where the United States sort of tries to promote this benevolent imperialistic idea of international politics, where the real meaning of self-determination includes a right of other states to attack the troublemaker. Right. You know? And of course, the only one with the capability to do those kinds of things was the United States. So there was a lot of resistance by people in, in Latin America, um, thinkers and, and publicists. And there was a series of meetings, the 1923 meeting, the, the 1927 meeting, the 1928 meeting, until in 1928 in Havana, there was a showdown between El Salvador, Argentina, 
Chile and other countries that were against uh, the expansion of uh, U.S. influence through the Monroe Doctrine, and uh, other countries that were more friendly to, towards this benign imperialism, like um, Peru, sadly, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Cuba. Uh, Peru has always been uh, very friendly towards U.S. policies in the region. And so the conference was sort of a failure in, in production of documents. There was very few treaties that were approved because Latin American countries were demanding that the, the agreements include the phrase, all states are equal, no state has the right to intervene in other states' affairs, period. No qualifications, no, maybe we can intervene in these circumstances, uh, no. So the 1928 meeting was not really very successful in terms of production of treaties, but was very successful in terms of Latin America scoring a victory over the U.S. Pan-Americanism sort of failed after 1928. So realizing that this was the case, the U.S. starts the good neighbor policy. It, it changed its narrative and says, okay, then let's sign this treaty that Latin Americans want to sign. And that treaty is called the 1933 Montevideo Convention. Right. So when you read the terms of the of the Montevideo Convention, there are there are things that are very remarkable. Starting with the Article Eight, saying uh, no state has the right to inter intervene in the internal or external affairs of another. Period. And particularly one that I particularly like is Article Eleven. The contracting states definitely establish as the rule of their of their conduct the precise obligation not to recognize territorial acquisitions or special advantages which have been obtained by force whether this consists in the employment of arms, in threatening diplomatic representations, or in any other effective coercive measures. The territory of a state is inviolable and may not be the object of military occupation, nor of other measures of force uh, imposed by another state directly or indirectly, or, uh, or for any motive, whatever, even temporarily. I, mean, I don't think that exists in, in any other treaty on, on use of Bellum, the prohibiting occupying territory. Uh, and that's a treaty that the U.S. has signed. As part of this policy, what happened is that after you know 1939, World War II starts, and then Cold War dynamics took over, and uh, that sort of melted away in the proxy wars of the 60s and 70s. So the 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 initial victory of Latin America expressed in this treaty sort of melted away because of broader geopolitical phenomena, which is sad, but um, it is still there. It's still a valid treaty. Right. And understudy, understudied, completely understudied and misunderstood. Right. Well, as you say, I mean, every student, certainly in you know, the United States, I think most public international law courses, to the extent that they, and they all do look at the Montevideo Convention, do so for the purposes of identifying the principles of statehood. And so typically do not look at these other provisions that you've, you've identified. But so what is, in your view, the relationship between the history underlying the Montevideo Convention and the Kellogg-Briand Pact, or is there a subsequent relationship? What, what is the relationship between the two treaties, in your view? So I don't know if there's a specific relationship, as in both responded to different phenomena. It's just that at that time, the idea of peace as an element of foreign affairs was better received by states. So I guess I don't think uh, the 1933 convention would have been possible without the antecedent of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, mostly because of the approach of the United States. 
since the United States had already agreed to the Caribbean Pact, I'm presuming it was not that much of a leap to agree to this one as well. But the thing is, this trend, this ideological trend that exists in the Caribbean Pact that was so well put in the in this uh, internationalist the book by Scott Shapiro and Una Hathaway, right. um, follows a, one line of argument, one um, branch of the anti-war phenomenon. There is another one, and it was in Latin America. The idea that uh, international disputes should be solved through courts and not war is very old in the region, starting in the in the early 20th century as well. And the idea that states should not be allowed to intervene in the affairs of others, except for specific reasons, dates back to the dates to the days of, of Carlos Calvo in the late 19th century. So I I, I feel like uh, that's a, a different branch that comes from similar sentiments but out of different set of circumstances, different legacy, if you will. And I feel that that branch is understudied um, right now. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that there are more and more Latin American scholars coming out and, and talking about this. I, I actually, you asked me to prepare some recommendations of text, so at the end I'll tell you right. who. <laughs> but I don't know if, I feel like that's the nascent trend. Like It seems to me, from what I discussed with, friends and colleagues in the global north that the U.S. and Europe are sort of rediscovering Latin American international law in the past 10 years. And before that, it was a very obscure part of international law. So it's changing, but slowly. Right. And I think, as you point out in the essays, and something we should perhaps talk a little bit more about, I think part of the importance of all of this is that there is this tendency particularly, I think, in the United States, to focus on the state practice and opinio juris of a very small handful of powerful countries as indicating that there's emerging principles of customary international law supporting, for instance, the responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention on the one hand, or much more obviously the unwilling or unable doctrine and, you know, you are one of the, the Latin American scholars who are, who are saying, well, no, wait a minute. You can't take the silence or the somewhat ambiguous statements in support of international law from the Latin American states as constituting acquiescence or tacit support for this state practice. And so maybe we should just talk a little bit more about that phenomenon of this taking silence or support for uh, generic statements of support for international law as constituting acquiescence or tacit support for what would really constitute a violation of the use ad bellum regime. I, I think that um, here's the thing. There is a tendency in the United States and Europe as well, to a certain degree, to think of international politics as the field of great power politics. And I don't think that is fair because people expect uh, Latin American states, global South states to issue a statement when bombs are falling in the ground. And that's, that's just never going to happen. There is such a thing as small power politics, non-power politics involved 
And it requires listening differently. So I was involved in one of these efforts to map out reactions to the serious. Right. And it is a very interesting uh, exercise. And in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that that is being made. And I'm happy that, that like the, the team of people who worked on this one sort of like uh, set a precedent. And now more people are starting to map out these reactions. That is very important. Right. But as important as it is, it is an incomplete method. Because when bombs are falling, sometimes a lot of states, very on purpose, choose not to speak. Right. So, for example, you have Brazil and Mexico, the two powerhouses in diplomatic terms in Latin America, uh, making very modest uh, statements when bombs are falling. But when you go to speeches in the General Assembly, or, I don't know, very much more discreet articles that, for example, the Brazilian Ministry of Foreign Affairs published in 2004, uh, maybe even in Portuguese or in Spanish, the assertions are a lot more uh, powerful because they talk about the law. They don't talk about what the United States did this particular time. They talk about the interpretation of the abstract rules that we should take into consideration. Right. And and Latin American states have been very influential in this. The, the 2005 outcome document would not have been the same in terms of with regard to humanitarian intervention if it wasn't for Latin American states uh, putting arguments into saying let's not read a very let's not create a very expansive concept of humanitarian intervention. Let's focus on multilateralism and the role of the UN Security Council. So it depends on where you look and how you listen. And there are experiences that to me are, are very surprising, like, for example, with the unwilling or unable example, a very frequent case that it is used to, to justify its, its customary status is this case of uh, Colombia and Ecuador in 2008, where Colombia attacked a camp of FARC um, uh, militants in Ecuadorian territory. And that is used to say, yes, it was an armed group in Ecuador and Colombia attacking uh, the group. Therefore, it is an example of unwilling or unable. Right. In fact, there is one quote uh, where Colombia said that Ecuador was unwilling to help. And that is taken out of context because that is actually the opposite effect. Colombia initially did say that they were going to, that they were, they had a right to attack the FARC economy. But then they were very quickly taken to the Rio group. Back then, the Rio group was a collection of all Latin American states in the region right. uh, without the United States. It's a group that no longer meets, sadly, but it is. It, it, it was very representative of Latin American positions. And basically, all of the countries in the region sat the Colombian and the Ecuadorian president in one room and did not leave the room until Colombia apologized to Ecuador. And there is very apologetic language that comes on that comes from Ecuador, from Colombia after the fact. And this was such a big deal that it was transmitted live on TV. I saw it live on TV in Peru because it was such a big deal. And this idea that Colombia apologized to Ecuador and issued a formal apology, and there's this very awkward image of Rafael Correa, the Ecuadorian president, shaking hands with uh, the uh, Uribe, the, the Colombian president very clearly not wanting to shake Correa's hand, but <laughs> being forced by the, you know, 20 something states around him saying, you messed up. And then the resulting declaration from the Rio group, very clearly opposing what Colombia had done, 
that is very baffling to not see that anywhere as evidence against the unwilling or unable. Right. Mostly because it's in Spanish. Right. Interesting. And so perhaps we can just circle back and we could, of course, talk about the unwilling or unable doctrine all day because I have a particular interest in that. But you also mentioned humanitarian intervention. And as you know, I mean, Kevin Heller was on the podcast uh, several episodes ago talking about humanitarian intervention. So I think it would be interesting just to for you to expand a little bit on what you mentioned just now about the Latin American position in discussions around responsibility to protect and the, the UN document that came out of meetings on the development, potential development of a principle of humanitarian intervention. Yes. So in Latin America, when Latin America enters the, you know, the 90s zeitgeist of, I'm going to say optimism with the end of the Cold War and humanity is going to do everything. The History Channel was was passing, you know, <laughs> documentaries on how we're going to colonize Mars, not what will happen after the end of the world, you know. <laughs> uh, Latin America had come out of, of the 80s in a very bad period for the region, military dictatorships in the 60s and 70s, and human rights were a very important part of the new Latin American post-democratization epoch, like momentum. Uh, so it was very uh, logical for many Latin American states to say, yes, there is a duty to prevent gross human rights violations. So there was interest from Latin America on this idea of uh, humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect to the point where the responsibility to protect the team task force, the, the Canadian task force, met uh, in one of its meetings in Santiago in Chile, who had, uh, the country had just come out of you know, the Pinochet dictatorship. And it was a very important moment for Latin America because the problem with uh, un uh, humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect is who decides right. when you can invade. And so Latin America consistently said, well, that's why we have a security council. And many scholars uh, at the time were saying, well, but what if the Security Council is not acting? Then there needs to be some way of engaging in some level of unilateral or multilateral but non-authorized intervention. And that resonated uh, in, that, that sounded to Latin American ears a lot like what Pan-Americanism was. The United States saying, you are a dictatorship, therefore I get to invade you, or you are no longer <laughs> business friendly, therefore I get to invade you. Now you just turn it into, you don't respect human rights, therefore I'm going to invade you. And then the Iraq war happened. And definitely all over Latin America, the, the, the main response to this was, see, we cannot give you know free reign to the great powers to decide who gets to be invaded and who doesn't. We need some level of mechanism to prevent this. And so there was a big push in from Latin America to incorporate uh, the idea of Security Council authorization as an element of humanitarian intervention. And that was the Latin American contribution to the 2005 outcome document. Brazil was a very um, active diplomatic actor in this. They had a, a counter-proposal basically called not responsibility to protect, but responsibility while protecting, focusing more on, on not on the reacting part and invading part, but on how do we make sure that countries don't get to 
you know, violate human rights in the first place. Right. Uh, because of this fear that unilateral humanitarian intervention is arbitrary. There's no standard for who gets to decide where and when one country invades. And so the fear of great power politics is again present in this. And I, there's never been big support for uh, what Kevin calls genuinely unilateral humanitarian intervention uh, in Latin America. It's always been, we're all in favor of protecting human rights, but let's maintain the UN system intact. That's why when the Syria strikes happen and Latin American states say, we need to respect, we need to make sure that everyone respects the UN charter system. What they're referring to is this charter system that doesn't allow these kinds of interventions. Right. So we've talked a little bit about how, in your view, we need to understand the positions and the statements or the silence of Latin American countries through this lens. But I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about how you see the Latin American approach and perspective playing a role in the development of international law itself. And I think maybe one entry point to that conversation is you wrote a blog post on the Latin American Caroline incident. And I'm going to be speaking soon with Craig Forces, the, the author of the recent book on the Caroline incident. And as I'm not sure if you've read it, but as you probably know, in any event, his analysis is really interesting on how this really fairly inconsequential incident in some respects plays this outsized role or exercises a great deal of influence over the development of thinking about use of force and self-defense and comes to define the, the test for self-defense in some respects. And you look at an incident from a similar time frame in Latin America, which had very different outcomes and very different lessons, and nobody knows anything about it, and it has exercised no influence on international law. And so I guess the question that arises from this is, well, well, to what extent should we be going back to mine these historical examples, and to what extent can these incidents or even current Latin American positions and perspectives on international law start to have more of a purchase and exercise more of an influence on the development and understanding of international law? Yes, that is a that is a very good uh, question uh, because, well, me personally, I, I really like to look into the history of, of institutions and try to get uh, lessons uh, from them. I don't want to say that... Um, pre-charter practice bears any concrete precedential value in for modern international law. I think those two, the, the UN Charter is such a defining moment that we need to be careful when we talk about pre-charter practice. Mm -hmm. But I do think we need to be aware of how is it that international law is created over time? Like how did we get to the, U, to the UN Charter that we know today. And I actually found this very interesting from your conversation with Adil Haq about how the UN Charter was understood in the beginning while it was being negotiated and how we understand it today. Right. There's a process there. There's a, there's a path that deviates from the original meaning. And that process is one that I, I am more interested in understanding uh, so that we, you know, this, this continuous process of, creation and recreation of international law, lawyers should be more aware of. So 
which sources get picked and how they are read matter even today because right now today we are creating the different law that scholars 100 years from now will have and they will look back just like we're looking back at the caroline and say oh wow in 2020 they understood this specific thing completely different what happened and so hopefully by understanding this process the 2020 and 2120 laws will speak a little bit better to each other than the 1820 and the 2020 speak to each other right now. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, exposure to sources. You asked me if I've read uh, Craig Frasisi's book. I have only been able to access excerpts because when the book came out, I was based in Peru and I just had no access to it. It was impossible to get it. Now I do, but now I'm, I've, it's sort of fallen back into the pile of uh, <laughs> the reading list, sadly, right. because of the PhD. But in Peru, I really had a, a lot less access to literature than I do now in London. And that is part of the issue. I do not remember even studying the Caroline in my international law class. I, I read about it in Opinion Europe. <laughs> so this. This way in which we create international law tells a story. And the story that it tells us is the way international law is understood is very Western, very European, very 19th century oriented. So the contributions that come from outside of Europe are usually lost somewhere along the way. So, for example, with this idea of the Mexican Caroline. And even calling it the Mexican Caroline is a problem because right. we're framing it as the Caroline <laughs> from Mexico. Right. So I would say the Corostiza affair, right? That is, is, that is a very curious example because the sources are in English. The Corostiza pamphlet is a document that the ambassador from Mexico left behind before he left the United States in protest because of what had happened with the Texan rebellion so that people could read what had happened. So. There are Spanish sources and English sources. There's an, an official English translation done by the uh, Department of State. So maybe we can just pause here for a second. We can take just two minutes and explain what the facts of that incident were. Right. Yes, yes. So um, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, so the, the Gorostiza affair is this during the Texan rebellion back when Texas was Texas, you know, a, a province of Mexico. They, they declared themselves in rebellion against the Mexican government. And the border between Mexico and the United States wasn't well defined. A very common problem in that area was raids by indigenous peoples who uh, did not respect the border, of course, because uh, it, it was not their border. And so both countries had accepted an obligation to control the indigenous, quote unquote, Indian war bands that crossed the border frequently. And so when Texas declares state of rebellion, the United States was favorable to the Texan cause because it was mostly American adventurers, you know, crossing over to Mexico and Americanizing, USizing uh, Texas. So the U.S. was partial to Texas, but did not want to risk, you know, a war just yet. So they uh, recognized belligerency of the Texan government, and Mexico sent an army to defeat. This is the, the time of El Alamo, you know, the, yeah. all these battles. And uh, one of the issues involved was that the United States wanted to send troops into Mexico to subvert 
make uncomfortable the position of the Mexican army by under the excuse that there were indigenous war bands in the region. And since the Texans were doing so well fighting Mexico, then there wasn't enough Mexican troops there at the moment to control the indigenous war bands. So the U.S. wanted to send troops into Mexico to quote-unquote control the indigenous people, when in reality it was basically to make things more difficult for Santa Ana uh, to quell the, the rebellion. So the Mexican ambassador uh, felt compelled to protest because he said the only way you can send troops into Mexico is with uh, Mexican consent. And Mexico has not not given consent. You, the, the treaty that you're mentioning basically says that you need to take control of you know, indigenous peoples in U.S. territory, and we take care of indigenous people in Mexico. And so the U.S. decides to enter Mexican territory claiming a state of necessity. And this very uh, European understanding of the concept of, of intervention. And so Mexico protests, uh, and the, um, the Mexican ambassador, uh, Gorostiza, uh, ultimately leaves his station in protest and leaves behind a pamphlet with the information as to why he had left in protest. And so he protests saying, you cannot claim a state of necessity that doesn't really exist because there's no threat from the indigenous people right now, and you are causing disproportionate harm to the Mexican war. So under natural law, you need to respect, uh, you need to act as a neutral. You have recognized belligerency. So you need to be a neutral. And the interesting thing is, it's almost switched around with the Carolan in, in the Carolan incident. It was the United States saying, you cannot do this United Kingdom. Right. Uh, and the United Kingdom saying, well, but there was a state of necessity. And the, and the United States saying, well, you need to show that. So with regards to the United Kingdom, the United States was saying, you need to show that a state of necessity exists in order to do this. And with Mexico, the United States was saying, the mere existence of a state of necessity means that I can go into your territory and I don't need to justify anything. Right. So that difference in approach, I would say Gorostiza would agree with Webster, uh, <laughs> but not with Dickens, you know, the, his, his counterpart. <laughs> right. At that time. Interesting. So just to circle back to the, the, bigger, the bigger picture again of, so, you know, what relevance does Latin American perspectives or approach have for the development of international law. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how you know, your conception of the Latin American approach and perspective sort of fits with or relates to third world uh, approaches to international law and twail theories and scholarship on international law. Yes. Yeah, so uh, that is interesting because yeah, I, I was going to mention uh, it's not just Latin American uh, approaches because, for example, the, the theory of the freedom of the seas attributed to Grotius, was a result of Grotius traveling through Southeast Asia with the East India Company and you know learning about these rules that existed in that time. So there is a lot of hidden contributions in international law, not just Latin American. In the case of, of, of Latin America, I think there is a quite a bit of, I would say, especially with the with the um, use of balance with jib jab, <laughs> to use your your term, there's a lot of contribution possible there to see how it evolved because of the Latin American region at the moment of independence being a also a, a society where white sons of Spanish people called criollos, 
the translation to English is loses something. It's called Creole. Mm-hmm. They were trying to demonstrate to Europe that they were also part of this, you know, standard of civilization, that they were also Westerner. And so they tried to appropriate Western theories of international law to use them in their favor in international discussions. And so that's, that's where Andres Bello, Carlos Calvo, uh, all of these Latin American scholars come in. And well, on the one hand, that means that uh, there is a lot of contemporaries to the great debates. For example, the Liber Code was translated to Spanish in 1879 because Chile and Peru went to war. And uh, they, the Chileans wanted to, to show that they were complying with the rules of war and therefore translated the principles into Spanish. And then they applied them with the realities of um, the war that was being fought between Peru and Chile. So all of these you know, tweaks and contributions are usually lost along the way because they are in the periphery. And there are interesting books. Uh, there's a very good book by uh, Arnold Becker Lorca uh, called Mestizo International Law. Uh, who deals with this quite a bit. Um, what are these contributions that are sort of lost in the way? And you can see how we end up with the law that we have because these periphery authors insert little things here and there that sometimes sometimes uh, pass the test of time, like the Calvo Clause. Everyone thinks Carlos Calvo's biggest contribution is the Calvo Clause and that's it. He has a lot more to say. And sometimes they just get lost along the way. That is that is the challenge, I think, to to, to make sure that we have a a bit more of a exposure to, to and and it's not just the, the global north's fault. At the same time, it is a problem of mechanics. Like much of this is written in Spanish, and and there's no one translating. Right. But yeah, I I do think there is a lot to learn from from the Latin American experience on this uh, use ad bellum idea that interventionists should be should be banned from the early 19th century. Well, listen, I was going to digress into your blog post on the first strike uh, and the Soleimani strike. But since we've already taken almost an hour, I think I'll pause here. I mean, this has been a a wonderful discussion. I don't want to distract from really the focus on the Latin American approaches and perspectives on international law. As you just left off talking about some of the important scholars, I thought it'd be a good moment to bring your three recommendations of reading that will help our audience really sort of dig into the Latin American contributions. Sure. Um, I'm happy to do that. I, I, I just, I happen to talk too much and I'm a Latin American. So we we're famous for talking too much. So I think I took all the time and left no time for Soleimani. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that I'm trying to pack too much into one episode, but there's, <laughs> you've written, you know, a lot of different things all of which are really interesting. So we'll have to have you back to talk about the first strike issue, which provoked a lot of interesting discussion when it came out. So, Sure, I'm happy to return. <laughs> okay, so I, I, was, I had three, three suggestions. There's many more. I've been mentioning some through the, through the podcast, uh, Becker Lorca and, and Lights. But I think one that is very important for everyone to understand is this book by an Argentinian scholar uh, and a good friend of mine, who's Juan Pablo Scarfi. It's called The Hidden History of International Law in the Americas, Empire and Legal Networks it's by Oxford University Press. That book is very interesting because it tells the story of how the United States, I guess, intelligentsia of publicists engaged with South American and Latin American, mostly South American scholars, 
to try and sell the idea of Pan-Americanism and create this unified international law of the American continent or, or the Americas. And the battle that ensues with the Latin American scholars that were thinking, no, it is not American international law as a Pan-American US and Latin America law. It is a Latin American law that's different from US and European law. And that discussion is actually is very, it's called hidden history, but so it's very poorly hidden because if you go into the uh, American Journal of International Law articles, most of the discussions are there in the early numbers in the early 20th century, which is that no one reads. But these ideas of what should be intervention, what should not be intervention, the Montevideo Convention, everything that I'm discussing about the Montevideo Convention is there in the American Journal's early entries. So this book systematizes them and presents them in a cohesive way. So I think it's very interesting to understand just exactly what Latin America did in those years for the broader international law discussion. And then there's a, a Liliana Obregón, she's Colombian. Uh, she wrote uh, an article called Between Civilization and Barbarism, Free All Interventions in International Law. It's in Third World Quarterly, Volume 27. It's, that one's interesting because it explains to a global north audience, who are these Creoles? Who are these Criollos? Like white Latin Americans? I, I, I know there's a, a discussion about this in the United States because the term Latino has sort of like encompassed all of us as a, as a minority in the United States. But Latino is a term used to refer to, to differentiate people from Latin America and of Latin American ancestry from the rest of the United States. It's not really, it doesn't really explain who Latin Americans are. So there is a very big difference between Latin Americans and Latinos. And so in Latin America itself, there are white Latin Americans, there's like Afro Latin Americans, Asian Latin Americans. And so this book does a good is a good introduction to understanding who are these people who, who spoke in the in the 19th century trying to sound as European as they can. And that, that creates different things, right? The, the, on the one hand, it is the Latin American contribution to the European international law that survived. So those are the people that I will quote to you. At the same time, it means that non-white voices from Latin America were silenced for, are still silenced for, you know, centuries. So that is a very interesting book for scholars of international law to understand who was speaking and what were they speaking and why in the 19th century. So I, I think that'll be an eye-opener for many people that uh, are only now trying to understand the dynamics and the legacies of who is speaking in Latin American Greek. And you were talking about Quayle. That is actually a very big topic in Quayle. Who was speaking from Latin America back then? I can give you a lot of other recommendations, but I won't because I'm running out of time. And the last one is a book by uh, Andrew Fitzmaurice. He's a historian. It's called Discovery. It's a paper, sorry. Discovery, Conquest, and Occupation of Territory. It's in the Oxford Handbook of the History of International Law. I like that a lot because it looks at, I discuss in, in my articles on the Caroline, how would we look at, how do we look at past law? And how do we understand what past law means? And this idea that I mentioned of how the law changes from original meaning to current understanding. Uh, and he does a very good job in explaining this idea of discovery, occupation, and conquest, and how the concept has changed over the centuries from you know 15th century Europe to today. And he does it outside the twail you know, narrative. So it, it, it might be very interesting for, for people to see how what the law is, is a methodological question and one that we need to keep in mind when we do our research.
Wow. Well, those all sound really fascinating. So thank you so much. And Alonzo, thanks for joining us and for such a rich introduction to, to the topic. I think you know, this is going to be really valuable for both the experts and the students uh, alike. So thanks again. Stay safe and good luck with both the PhD and your, your time at Michigan this semester. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully back soon. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our next episode in which I will be speaking with Professor Craig Forces of the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law in Canada, mostly about his wonderful book on the Caroline Incident and how it influenced the development of the doctrine of self-defense in the Yusef Balam regime. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever social media you use, and follow us on Twitter at JibJabPodcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care. <laughs>